Welcome to Access Utah. Your host today, Sherry Quinn, revisits her conversation in the first half of the program with former oil executive and geologist Mark Deschewitz about the unique geology of southern Utah parks and the ancient history of oil in the area. Then at 9.30, Science Questions presents a special encore program about youth addiction and recovery, featuring Utah addiction scientist Glenn Hansen and an educational approach gaining popularity across the nation that fosters recovery schools. Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Today on the program, we hear from your potential tour guide. My name is Mark Deschewitz, and I'm a geologist. And currently, I work with my wife for uh, Dixie University, a small arm of Dixie University, which is uh, called Dixie Road Scholar. And uh, what we do is we take people out on uh, big tour buses with a driver and we do educational tours of the national parks and state parks as well, of Utah, Nevada, and uh, portions of Arizona. Before giving guided tours, Desowich worked in the fossil fuel industry, coal and oil. His background gives him a unique perspective on the geology of the parks. In addition, touring the parks offered him a new beginning. I worked for Shell and uh, actually Amoco Production Company when it was Amoco before it got bought out by BP. And I worked in the oil industry for about 30 years and a a little over a year in the coal industry many years ago. And um, after I reached my pain point at Shell, which was about three decades, uh, we decided we needed, needed a change. And this is after we were actually in New Orleans for Hurricane Katrina. So we evacuated for Katrina, moved over to Houston, and after about three and a half, four years or so of living with uh, five and a half million other people, we decided we needed to move closer to family and in in an inspiring place, which uh, we found here just west of St. George. And uh, how do we wind up with Road Scholar? Well, we were registering to vote in Ancestor Square, and there happened to be a gentleman there who was um, taking the registration forms, and he worked for Road Scholar. We struck up a conversation. So within two weeks of being in St. George, we we landed a job, which was a good thing because it was, it was in the middle of the, uh, the Great Recession. So we actually needed it. So it came at the right time for us. In college, Desowich started out studying business, which he says he didn't like. So he switched to geology and was instantly hooked. I'd always had an interest in science, and I took a, a minor segue in the, into the business world, and I hated it. So wound up with geology, and that's it. <laughs> Found what I love to do. He and his wife live near one of the most interesting areas, geologically speaking, in the state, Silver Reef in Washington County. When silver was discovered there in the late 1800s, Silver Reef turned into a booming, rowdy mining town about a mile north of Leeds. Now it is more appreciated for its geologic history. Silver Reef is an amazing spot on the planet. It's a very, very special place because when you go to Silver Reef, you can you can look at about 90 million years of tectonic history uh, where the Farallon or Pacific Plate was slamming into the western side of the U.S. And you see the product of that, and the product of that is the Virgin Anticline, 
which uh, Silver Reef occupies the western flank of it. And then about, oh, about 25 million years ago, uh, the Pacific Plate started to pull away and it started to extend the crust throughout this area. And when it did that, uh, you created the uh, the Hurricane Fault and you started uh, the initiation of uh, some of the, uh, the igneous activity. The, the Pine Valley Mountains came up. And then all of the subsequent igneous activity is related to uh, the extensional forces in here and creation of the Basin and Range in Nevada, of course, the most mountainous state in the Union, which is pretty cool. And that's all due to the extension. So, so you can stand by the museum, the Wells Fargo Museum in Leeds, and you can look out and you can see the Colorado Plateau. Um, if you're facing north, you can see the Colorado Plateau to your right which is just a beautiful site. You can see Zion National Park from that vantage point. And if you look to the left, you can see the Pine Valley Mountains, which is a very special feature in itself because it's the largest type of igneous feature uh, that we know of in the world, just north of St. George, just west of Leeds. Igneous comes from the Latin word meaning fire. So they are rocks that form from melted crust, melted portions of the crust that come up onto the surface or intruded into uh, the rocks below the surface. If they're intruded into the surface, they're called intrusive igneous rocks. If they're extruded onto the surface, they're called extrusive igneous rocks. Pretty, pretty simple. It's easy for geologists to remember that way. The history of this area is a, a long one. There are two types of history. There's the tectonic history that made the structures out here. And then there's uh, something called the depositional history. That's how the rocks were actually laid down. And a lot of, you know, you can go back about 250 million years ago to the top of the Grand Canyon sequence. And what you see are consecutive layers of, of sea level rises and falls. Sea level coming in, uh, depositing marine strata, and sea level going out, uh, depositing more terrestrial type sediments. And what you see when you look out from that particular horizon, from the top of the Grand Canyon sequence up, is a, is a marvelous history book. And each one of those formations is like a chapter in Earth history. There may be a marine chapter. There could be a tidal flat chapter. Uh, there could be a river and floodplain chapter. And each one of these layers is just stacked on top of one another. And after all those layers were, were laid down, they were uplifted and eroded and intruded by igneous material, all due to the tectonic history. So it's got a pretty long depositional history uh, going back to the bottom of the Grand Canyon sequence uh, all the way up to the Eocene, which is where uh, Bryce Canyon sits at the very top of the Grand Staircase. So you've got a lot of Earth history just in the area from the top of the Grand Canyon sequence to Bryce Canyon. If you're at uh, the north rim of the Grand Canyon or at the Lafive Overlook near the north, north rim, looking north, you're standing on uh, 270 million year old rocks looking out into the distance about 65 miles at the top of the Grand Staircase. You've got 35 million year old rocks. So you've got about 230 or so million years of geologic history just in that, uh, that short time span, that short distance. Zion National Park on top of the Colorado Plateau is another chapter in the region's geology noted by Desowich. The Colorado Plateau started to uplift due to processes geologists are now just beginning to understand due to a project called the U.S. Array. 
which is developing um, deep-seated images, uh, 3D images below the surface, uh, deep into the crust and mantle. Uh, so we're starting to understand how the Colorado Plateau uplifted. And what you see in Zion are a series of canyons, and all these canyons are related to faulting and fracturing that are due to both extension and uplift of the Colorado Plateau. So anytime you see a canyon or a slot canyon or a large canyon, it's due to either fracturing or faulting. And if you think about it, think about if you took uh, an onion and you cut it in half on your, on your cutting board in one direction and you kind of laid out those slices onto the cutting board. And then you took another, the other half and you kind of diced it up and you put that in a pile on the cutting board and you tilted the cutting board and you ran water over it. The stuff that's sliced and diced okay, would, would wash off of that, that cutting board faster, right? Because there's more surface area for the water to, to drag the material down the cutting board. Well, the same thing happens in canyons. The water, the, the fracturing actually uh, creates an area for water to flow in. It creates an area for soil to form in, for plants to grow in. Trees grow in those fractures. There's root drying. There's freeze-thaw action in those uh, fractures. And those fractures become slot canyons, and slot canyons become grand, much larger, and uh, that's how Zion Canyon came to be, from a little slot canyon that eventually got eroded away by the, uh, the Virgin River. Next, he covers Capitol Reef. It's kind of like the Leeds area, really. The Leeds area has the, uh, the Pine Valley Lacolith to the west of it. And the Virgin Anacline sits just on, we're sitting on the west flank of the Virgin Anacline. Well, in Capitol Reef, you've got the water pocket fold which is a very large compressional feature, formed the same way and the same time that the Virgin Anacline formed. And you also have the Henry Mountains right there, too, which is another lacolith, which formed almost at the same time as the Pine Valley Mountains. So it's just uh, a, just a little bit different environment. You're not in the uh, Mojave Desert, just at the north end of the Mojave Desert. A little bit, little bit more water there and a little bit higher elevation and some beautiful, beautiful scenery out there. The Pine Valley Mountains, the Henry Mountains, the LaSalle's, and Navajo Mountain all have something in common. They're all lacoliths. What they really are, it, it's, it's kind of like a volcano wannabe. The igneous material, the liquid molten material came up, tried to make it to the surface, but it couldn't make it to the surface. So it kind of found a layer that was weak, and it injected along that horizontal layer, and it kind of bowed up all the formations on top of it. And it happened several times. It kind of injected its way in and just kind of bowed the surface up. And then when it bowed that surface up, all, those, all that material got eroded away, exposing all the igneous material. It was really an intrusive igneous rock. And now it's exposed to the surface for all of us to see today. Switching gears, Desowich discusses the geology of oil. I asked him to define it and talk about why we have so much of it. That's a tough one to, to answer. Oil is a hydrocarbon. It's, is a hydrocarbon. It's made up of hydrogen and carbon atoms, and uh, it's a very energy-dense fuel. And it forms from zooplankton and, and phytoplankton, animal and plant plankton, that was floating in a water column, growing in, a, in, a, in the photic zone. And special conditions had to be present in order to preserve that organic matter. So... Imagine a body of water, so you've got this, this basin, okay, this, just like a basin you find out in your garage, just, just a tub. And at the bottom of that tub, this, this organic matter is raining down, dying and raining down to the bottom. And when it gets down to the bottom, it starts to decay. 
And if the basin's deep enough, it has just a, a certain amount of oxygen in that bottom layer. And through the years of success, all this material, organic matter raining down, it uses up all the oxygen at that bottom layer. So you get a layer down there called an anoxic zone or oxygen-free zone. So as that material continues to rain down, now it goes into an oxygen minimum zone or anoxic zone, and it gets preserved. Over hundreds of thousands, millions of years, that material gathers into a very thick layer of organic matter. And as it gets buried deeper and deeper and gets subjected to more heat and pressure, it becomes something called a sapropel or a kerogen, then sapropel. And then eventually that material is actually like an organic oily ooze that's in this rock. It gets buried deep enough, and eventually what happens is it ex gets expelled once it hits a certain depth or temperature. When it does that, it's trying to find a, a place to go. And it may go up a fault. It might go up a fracture. It might travel for long distances and get into a rock that's called a reservoir. So just like water is held in a reservoir in the subsurface, oil can also penetrate a reservoir in the subsurface. So, But in order for that to actually be contained, you need a trap. So you've got a source rock you've got a migration pathway, and then you need to trap it somehow. And there are a whole host of different types of traps that can form, one of which is an anticline, similar to the virgin anticline and the water pocket fold and all of these, and the kaibab uplift, those are all wonderfully um, exposed anticlines at the surface. So that's a trap. And if you think about if you, have a, if you ever use a good season salad dressing and you kind of mix it up and you've got oil and vinegar in there, right? What happens to the oil if you just let it set over time? It floats to the top because it's less dense. So imagine a sandstone layer that's kind of folded into a dome and it's got a very impermeable layer on top of that sandstone. So you've got porous and permeable with an impermeable seal on top of it. And this oil comes in to a water-rich layer, it displaces the water because it's less dense. It floats up to the top, so you actually get a layer of, of reservoir with oil with water down below it. So that's a typical type of trap, and that was one of the first types of traps that was discovered by Colonel Drake in Pennsylvania back in the mid-1800s. They, they looked for surface anticline similar to what we see on the surface of Utah today. But that's a simplified version of what's needed. So you need reservoir, you need trap, you need source rock, and you need to bury it deep enough to expel it. And the fourth or fifth item is, is that you need the trap to be in place at the time of expulsion of the oil. So the timing has to be just right for that to happen. Bringing it to the surface is more complicated than you might think. The, the bottom line with regard to oil and gas exploration is that a lot of things have to have to work. And, and most people, and, and understandably so, really don't have a feel for this. But that, you know, most wildcat wells that are drilled by oil companies have about a 75% risk of failure. In an offshore setting uh, where rig rates are, can cost over a million dollars a day and it takes 150 days to drill a well, that's a high-risk venture. So in order for things to work, everything has to, has to come together in a very succinct fashion. It's really our Earth's history, and I think oftentimes it's overlooked, what it's made of and how precious it is. 
It is. Every time we, we turn on a light or start the engines in our car, we're actually, when you think about it, we're burning solar energy. We're using solar energy that was captured in organisms 65, in some cases 65 million years ago, in some cases 190 million years ago. So we're, we're taking solar energy that was captured in organisms that were buried and preserved and now reclaimed in the form of oil and refined to gasoline or in coal, for instance, uh, another thing uh, that, that gets burned. That's just you know, destroying solar energy from hundreds of millions of years ago in some cases. Yeah, pretty precious stuff. It is hard to imagine the expanse of the Earth's history and all it contains in the geology that we can see. We're talking about a 4.6 billion year Earth, and we're just talking about a very short time period, um, you know, at the, at the very top of the crust that we're looking at. So it has a very long history, and we're just trying to, um, we're just able to look at a very small portion of it because it's uplifted in those folds. So we can see it, you know, a little bit easier, right? And we can kind of walk down the middle of those folds because they're all eroded away. But yeah, you know, it's, it's a long, long history. And, you know, our lifespan is just a, the blink of an eye in geologic time. And it's hard for people to just get a handle on that. My wife likes it because she'll always be very young. Because I think in terms of, you know, millions of years. So, you know, she just says, you know, it's great being married to a geologist because... My age is nothing to them. <laughs> so, even if, if you strip away all the ages, you know, I always, I always tell people, you know, it, it really doesn't matter how old, you, what label you put on the earth. And I've had people that truly believe that the earth was 5,000 years old on some of our excursions and students o over the years. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it comes down to, you know, you don't want to interfere with people's belief systems. You know, I, I think that if you're passionate, if people are passionate about what they believe, I think that's wonderful. And I'm certainly not going to interfere with that. So what I usually tell people, you know, is that go out there and enjoy the beauty and put as many zeros on the end of whatever age you think it is, you know, and it really doesn't doesn't matter. The only thing that I always tell people is that, you know, when, when you remember when your mama used to make you pancakes in the morning, you know, the oldest pancake was on the bottom. And the youngest pancake was on the top. And that's really all you have to remember. So if you think the earth is 5,000 years old, then bust it up into, you know, 10-year increments. If you think it's 4.6 4 billion, then we have a different, different um, sequence. You know, that's all. Thank you for listening. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. 